I experienced sexism during my training. The only, the reason that I knew that is because I saw the way that other male trainees were being treated and then how I was being treated in the exact same situation. Welcome to What's Important to You. What's Important to You is a podcast created by Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice with the goal of amplifying diverse voices in healthcare. Today, you're listening to episode number 13, and it's Women's History Month. And I have four wonderful women with me today. We're gonna record this in honor of women, other women like us. We will have a conversation about our stories. Each of our stories matters and matters a lot. And we wanna share those with you. Some of my guests today have uh, grown up in the greater Washington DC area. And we have one guest that that grew up overseas. Uh, They're gonna share their values, their wisdom. They're gonna describe experiences that shape them as women, as healthcare providers, and as advocates of the community that they so beautifully serve these days. My name is Monica Escalante and I am your host. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So I'm gonna let my guests introduce themselves and we have Dr. Lisa Veroa Garcia, Dr. Ann Lichtenstein, Ms. Erica Budd, and Ms. Avis Hoyt O'Connor with me today. I'm gonna start with Avis. Avis, tell us a little bit about you. So my name is Avis. I've been with hospice um, for about 12 years here at Montgomery Hospice. Uh, I'm a chaplain, um, one of the spiritual care providers for Montgomery Hospice. I spent my first years in my career working, uh, serving as a pastor of local congregations, both in Massachusetts and Kentucky. And then my husband's job brought me here and I drove past the Montgomery Hospice uh, building one day when I was, had just moved here and thought, oh, hospice. Uh, And very shortly thereafter received a notification uh, for a job for a chaplain. So it was all kind of serendipitous. And I've really loved my time working with Montgomery Hospice. I come from a family of healthcare providers and nurses particularly. So um, hospice was kind of a normal and a nice step. Thank you so much, Avis. Erica? Hi, so I'm Erica and I have been in nursing for, oh my gosh, 20 something years. And I've been with Montgomery Hospice for 18 of those. I spent two years in oncology before that, which is what led me to hospice care, um, wanting to be a part of that end of life and kind of carry on with the people that you meet in a hospital that are going that that route of hospice and wanting to be a part of that. So um, I've done multiple roles with Montgomery Hospice. I'm currently a clinical manager for a facilities team, which is um, a passion of mine to work with facilities and take care of people in that in that home for them. It's their home setting. So. Yeah, you're one very respected nurse at Montgomery Hospice that has played different roles throughout the agency and uh, understands the whole process of serving families because you've played so many roles. It's, uh, thank you, Erica. Dr. Ann Lichtenstein? Hi, I'm Dr. Lichtenstein. I'm Associate Medical Director at Montgomery Hospice. Um, I'm from the Washington, D.C. area. I actually had a former career where I moved to New York City 
and worked in commercial photography and then um, had an interest in helping people and also in being a healthcare professional. And I ended up going to medical school and becoming a physiatrist, which is a physician of rehabilitation medicine. And what I'm really interested in is symptom management and quality of life for patients. And that led me to hospice. And I've been at Montgomery Hospice for about three years. Just absolutely love the work and the people here. And I feel so lucky to be here. Yeah. And, and for the audience, if you were seeing Dr. Ann, she looks so young. It's so hard to imagine her as a photographer and that this is not the first career, but a second one she chose. Dr. Lisa Barra Garcia. Hello. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa or BG. Um, I, I was born and raised in the Dominican Republic, so I'm the overseas one. <laughs> I'm an internist by training. I did some research in cancer. And back when I started or when I decided to uh, go to medical school, I thought my entire uh, training that I was gonna be an oncologist. But at one point uh, I decided to pursue my career in hospice and palliative care. My interest is being a Latino woman, um, a woman of color is to, help my community to do the transition in, in this kind of vulnerable, very vulnerable stage of their lives um, when everyone is facing most likely in great part for the first time of what, you know, what end of life looks like. And I'm, I'm interested in helping with those hard conversations. And uh, I'm very grateful to be working with Montgomery Hospice. This is um, the newest, I think, from the team. I haven't been here for four months. Mm -hmm. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you for being with us today. So we're going to jump right in the subject. Uh, we're celebrating Women's History Month. I am really intrigued to know how did you end up in healthcare? And in particular in hospice, because a lot of people may come to you like, oh, hospice, um, that's sort of uh, an odd choice. But I, I would like you to talk about why it may not be an odd choice or why did you make this choice? I actually can reflect on this after ending up in hospice and, and being there for a few years to see that it went back farther than I thought. All the way back to when I was 19 and my grandfather was dying with hospice care, not in the state of Maryland where I was but away in Pennsylvania. And I remember feeling like I wanted to be there, but I didn't know why I felt that way because it's kind of weird. So I just, you know, didn't ever say anything. And, but that's why I say I'm reflecting back on it. I can remember feeling that. And then I actually worked in childcare with, um, before I had my first two children. And then I, after giving birth, decided I wanted to go to nursing school and be a labor and delivery nurse because that was so fantastic birth and the start of life and everything and went to nursing school finished went to get a job and I couldn't be a new grad in labor and delivery but there was the opening in oncology so that's where I was I loved it it was great and like I said it led me to being in hospice care and doing the other end of life the end of life which is not birth but death and it's truly just as amazing and I tell my friends that I have some friends who can now understand that 
it was weird to them at first too, but it is, it's a very amazing thing. I am very thankful that what happened in the past and where I was able to work did lead me here, whatever intervention that was or, or fate or whatever. I'm very thankful for it. It sounds, Erica, that it was a calling that you felt early in life to help people who were at the end of their lives. It's interesting. I just didn't know it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's how callings sometimes are. We don't know why we're drawn to do something. Lisa? My, My interest in becoming a hospice doctor was basically when I finished medical school and I was in my first month of uh, wards, as we call it, uh, in rotating in internal medicine, always being drawn to doing research in oncology. But when I found myself in my first month in wards, right fresh, I had a patient that I took care of him and his family for three weeks of that time uh, in wards, for the three weeks that I was there for four, right? And it was the first patient that I, that I pronounced. So it was... I developed a very deep connection with them because this patient had liver disease and and no one had kind of guided him and put him through the the conversations of the process of explaining how his life was going to be changing and what to expect in terms of his uh, end of life. And we were, I mean, I was a little bit in the woods. Like I was like, what do I do with, with him? Like, and as an intern in my first month in words, I, I didn't know that I had the access of palliative care or that I, that hospice was there available for me. And, and I end up taking care of him with my team and even without the help of palliative care at that time, which reflecting back, I was, I, I thought to myself, why if we did have the service, I never reached out to them. So I found myself always going back to his bed side and talking to him a little bit longer. I was always a little bit late for, for my rounds and presentations. And then like, Lisa, come, we're going to start. But I was always trying to be there for him. And when things were not going right, then I, I questioned myself, wait a minute, like, we're always looking for ways to do more things. And because in medicine, things are available, that doesn't mean that this is right for the patient. So my mindset kind of shifted a little bit. And that's how I end up deciding that even from that very month that I wanted to pursue hospice and palliative care, oncology was always there, like, you know, in the cloud, like, I'm gonna, I'm most likely gonna do that. But after doing a whole month, another rotation in palliative care in hospice, I was like, okay, I think this is this is my calling, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do this to help my patients. So interesting, Lisa, that it was your first the first patient that you sort of companioned in their last days and uh, sort of shed light on this passion that you have, which is to alleviate the pain of people who are facing the end of their lives. Thank you so much, Avis. So as I said earlier, I came to hospice sort of serendipitously driving past in at a time, seeing something and kind of realizing um, I had spent my early career pastoring congregations. And um, so I was close to the time of people's death very often um, and celebrate finding ways to celebrate their lives in meaningful ways. And so it was a logical step. It was a logical place to come. I had... Uh, as I say, the, the last church that I served particularly was a very small congregation, elderly, and I was doing funerals all the time. <laughs> and um, so I think that that 
that kind of prepared me because I think a lot of what you do as a chaplain is similar to what you do as a pastor of a congregation. Similar in what way? Say a little more. Well, just the, the kind of way you want to be with people in moments of their lives, moments of import. In a congregation, you're, you're with people at kind of um, beginning of life and transitions in life, weddings. But it's the same idea of kind of being with people, attending to what it is that is important to them at that time. It's similar in the, the kind of hope of being with people in such a way that they find a, a peacefulness and a centeredness in that moment, whatever that moment is. Um, and I feel like as a chaplain, that's part of my calling in chaplaincy is to kind of be present to people and find out how by being present with them, if they're struggling, their struggles can be eased. And if they're at peace, their peace can be amplified. Yeah, that's a common theme that all three of you have, the power of the presence, right? And, and companioning someone and sort of all of you feeling that this was a natural evolution for you in your path. So, Anne, how was yours? You know, I think hearing everyone speak, it's, it's similar in a way. During medical training in the hospital, you do see death as traumatic and unexpected, which I think being a physician, you want to somehow ease people into it and somehow ease their suffering of the family members. And so you start thinking about, you know, how can you possibly do this for patients and their families? And during my, the following years of my residency training, I worked a lot with patients with disabilities from traumatic brain injury or spinal cord injury who, had, who have significant disabilities for the rest of their lives. And their transition from being a normal everyday person who's walking around to now having this serious disability, you know, involved a lot of talking and a lot of discussion with them and a lot of honestly just very difficult transitions for them. So I, I feel like I've been interested in, in people's quality of life and also in them coming to terms with what their diagnosis is and what that means for them. And I felt like hospice was a way that I could bring that to more people to the wider population and help as many people as I could. And also, I think think the, your personality fits in a certain place, right? So when you know that you're supposed to be in hospice and you're in hospice with these people and you're all working together with a common goal, you feel at home. And so that's, that's what happened to me. Yeah, that's beautifully put, that you found others who have the same shared calling that you have, that it feels like home. We are not the the odd ones anymore. It's, there's a community of people that are perhaps as odd as we could be described by um, some people and share that bond. I think that's a very strong connection we feel in the hospice world and certainly at Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice. I really want to know about one situation, a moment that you are particularly proud as a woman. So for, for our listeners, the hospice world is uh, predominant, predominantly women. Um, for the most part, males and, 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 and others are sort of the minority in, in, in the industry. But I would like to hear about some moment that you, made you particularly proud as a woman in a women-dominated field that you can think of. This is Avis. I was, it's hard for me to think about a particular moment, but what I think about when I think about healthcare and now my inclusion in the healthcare world 
is that I did come from, you know, my, my grandmother and my mother were both nurses. I have a number of cousins too, but that my mom uh, finished her career in psychiatric nursing. And I feel like she would be really proud of um, the kind of work that as a hospice worker, I have been able to provide for the kind of care I've been able to provide because as a nurse in, psych in a psychiatric hospital, she was very attentive to the weaving in of all the all the disciplines for people's health and well-being. Um, and so it's not a particular moment, but it's certainly there are moments when in hospice that I think um, that my mother would be very proud of of the work that we're able to do, with the, particularly my involvement in it. She would have probably appreciated the interdisciplinary approach that we have, where pain is not only physical pain, but it's also psychosocial and spiritual and the combination of all that being what you address, I, I think she would be very proud too. Because in, in general, the model that we have uh, from my point of view is, is, is something that could move upstream in the healthcare industry because everything affects us in multiple ways and certainly uh, psychosocially and spiritually any disease that we confront. Thank you, Avis. That was so. You have a series of very wonderful moments where your mom might be smiling at you. And real That's right, <laughs> Erica. Yeah, I, I think like you know, really not thinking of one particular thing. One thing that I am proud of is being able to even just go into healthcare and nursing, being a single parent, but also then being able to do the job that I did and taking care of people while also balancing that with with the home and and that it was that you were I was able to do it that the flexibility and the and the visits and things like that you know I think also that you know I I lost a sibling in December and I think that bringing what I knew to be able to help him and his family from out of state which was really hard through a pandemic, not being able to go there, but being able to do what I could and help them find a hospice that fit, although it was very much last minute, there wasn't a lot of time. But, um, you know, I think that I'm very thankful that I can bring that to, to my family. My grandmother went through our program right after, shortly after I started working here. And my dad has been, went through it too. So, um, I think that makes me feel really good that I can help family members. And, and my dad was, my dad was a hospital foreman. And I think he was really proud that I went into healthcare <laughs> very much so. And what a gift you are to your family, uh, even with long distance support, uh, love, compassion, and advice, as well as uh, supporting your own in your own home doing all of that as you balance all the other troubles of being a single parent, uh, yeah. sort of in, in managing to do all of that and be good in all of these aspects of your life and especially end of life that confronts us with the hardest moments we will, we will have to live through. And so I, I can hope I, that my children have seen that. I, I think they have and they'll have a different perspective you know, as, as they grow up and, and face that. And I hope that my family is a little bit more open to it and hospice isn't that bad word anymore. 
exactly. And that you raise your children with the values that are so powerful as to supporting one another in the value of the example you provided. Very beautiful. Also series of multiple moments where um, you're proud of yourself and, and others appreciate what you do. Anne? So I think it's just amazing that I work with almost all women every day. And, you know, we do our jobs really well and we help our patients and we do it every day. I almost don't think about it as one episode or, you know, time where we women are working and achieving things because we're doing it every day. And this is all the time. So it just makes me, it makes me really proud as a woman and just very appreciative. So. And one thing I've seen you do is bring more women work to do it together. And, and one gift that I have watched you use is these skills that you had as photography production that sees the whole process of the production applied to delivering the best possible care, where you look at the whole process and you bring people together to work with you to find solutions. I think that's that kind of leadership uh, it's, it's been a humbling for me to watch you do that in our own agency. So yeah, that's the defining moment. I'm responding that for you by watching you address problems that come our way and bringing other women to work with you to solve it. Women and men that work in the office. Lisa? Yes, so I, I think uh, my proud moment is, uh, you know, in this field is that, you know, Kind of going back to my roots, um, I'm, I'm the first female in my family to also pursue to pursue a career as a physician, and I have, I think my message is even looking at my 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 niece and my my cousins, and is that you can do it. Like I I come from a family of from my father's side, from a large family. Now one of my, my sisters is also a nurse, which I'm so proud of her. Um, and if she listened to this at one point, I'm proud of you, Melidita. Uh, my, my other, I have another cousin that is, that is a nurse, but I, but I, I'm only the only one, the only female. And sometimes it's kind of hard to think of like all the, the steps that we have to go through when we decide on, on you know, pursuing this career and then the other roles that we have in life uh, and how to, as Erica was saying in, in Anne and Avis, like you have to combine all that and then on top of that, do this work, which is, is hard. Like it's, it's you know, we're, we're so happy that we're doing this, but this is also very, 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 good feel, very hard feel. Um, so I'm, I'm very proud of uh, any any girl that is listening that, that would like to do this, you can do it. So for me, if I was able to make it, you can do it. And the reason why I say that, and I close with this is because I started medicine back in my country. And when I was like three years and a half in, I had to start back from zero when I moved to Puerto Rico. They didn't accept any of my credits. So I have to finish kind of college again and then start medical school back from scratch. So that took me seven years and a half when it shouldn't only take me less than that. And then I have to go to residency and then we have to do our fellowship. So you can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. <laughs> And that's the story of courage and not giving up on your dream. 
and deciding that you are in charge of your destiny. And what a lovely and inspiring story, Lisa. And, and to tell other girls that they can too pursue their dreams in a relentless way, that there's the obstacles are only lessons that we will just learn and put behind us. What a beautiful. So we were talking about the highs, the, the moments that made us proud. And I was going to ask you the next question, the challenges, the struggles. In, but I think we've been mixing them because the, the highs are sort of the response of a struggle. Um, you know, having to juggle with multiple things, multiple family members that required attention and continuing to pursue the studies, continuing to pursue the career, continue to tend to the patients. Um, sort of, it's, it's really interesting how you, you, as you were talking about the highs, you were also bringing the lows because those are the ones that helped you get to the highs. Is there any other struggle that you would like to share, Anne? Um, I, I experienced sexism during my training. The only, the reason that I knew that is because I saw the way that other male trainees were being treated and then how I was being treated in the exact same situation. And it was difficult and it was discouraging. I was yelled at for no good reason, honestly. And I think it does have a real effect on education and self-esteem. Medicine is a, is a difficult and very hierarchical kind of established profession, honestly. And I think as more and more women are coming into medicine and becoming physicians and nurses and other members of the medical field, I think that's being less tolerated, but it is still there and it still has real effects. I just, I also want to say that, you know, I've had female mentors and I've had male mentors and there are male members of the medical field who really support women. I think that is really, really important. And hopefully more men will support women going forward. I think it's a joint effort. Yeah, I certainly understand those comments very well. As someone who's um, often surrounded by other uh, chief financial officers that are males and sort of we're so different and the way we approach um, numbers is so different. Um, I fully relate with that and thank you for sharing that. We would like to think that it's something of the past, but it's not so much. It's still here. Yeah. Davis? Yeah, I would just say that um, I, I feel like because hospice, as we said earlier, has been so, you know, mostly women when we go into the office. So, so I think that that, but there is those vestiges of just kind of a, a hierarchical system. I would say that the challenges for me came actually before hospice when I was in a field um, as pa pastoring churches. Um, and for some people, seeing a woman in the pulpit is, is difficult, challenging of, their, of a theology that they've held. And, and sometimes it's, I think, like a lot of problems of racism or sexism is that it's in the back of the mind in a place where people um, don't even recognize sometimes that it's spilling over into their relationships with others. Um, and so I think, I think it's less than it used to be, but it's not... Um, gone. <laughs> so I, I think, uh, I feel like in hospice, 
when we are in the field and working with people, um, sometimes the biases and the prejudices, not only of us as clinicians, which I hope we're aware of and thoughtful about, um, but but sometimes our you know our patients will say things and do things that will, that are hurtful to um, others, and it's hard to watch, but it's also kind of meeting them where they are in that and trying to walk with them through that process of kind of leaving behind our old biases. What an interesting point that you bring up, that it might not be something that we experience ourselves or how you experience as you support families who are going through the end of their lives and how you watch that and how hard that must be. Avis, that you're, you're describing something that it's really important that we meet people where they are, but sometimes that is a challenge too, right? What an interesting, thank you for that, for that comment. And I, I, our audience, I assume some of them are hospice people that are familiar with that. I think that's gonna resonate with many. Do we have any more challenging situations that we would like to describe? Lisa? Yes, I, I think I would like to share like, and I did experience also sexism in, in throughout my training. Um, and one particular experience that I had is that I was covering an eye shift and, and I went to run what we call a rapid response team. And, uh, you know, and I was in the room and I was managing my patient pretty critically ill and I'm working with my nurses and uh, one of my, my male, you know, counterparts resident just came in to check me and, and just to see that I was doing okay. And I appreciated that so much, but then it immediately, unfortunately, triggered the fact that whenever there is a male figure in the room, even if I am the one running the show or I am the the, the one in charge at that point, things just start shifting to that male figure, like we are not present. And for me, it was very hard to experience that. But at the same time, because he came to check on me and I remember asking him specifically, can, let me, can I get the EKG? When the EKG was done, they literally handed to him in front of me when I have asked for it. And I looked at him, he looked at me, he just had, it was like kind of like frozen and he handed back to me and he's like, Dr. Berro is running the RRT. Like he was, it was, it was a very interesting, like in that moment of chaos to have that kind of, I'm not talking, but we're you know, our nonverbal language is talking that I'm here to support you. It was, it was very good. And the reason why that happened is because, and, and his wife and I talked about this, like she is a pediatrician and we were friends also during residency. And she was like, I have trained him. Like whenever this happens, he needs to honor that woman in the room. Like, and I was like, well, he's doing his part. You two taught him well. So it was kind of, even though it was hard and, and we have that situation, I, I kind of felt, okay, I wish there was also more, as, as Anne said, more other male counterparts that are, that have the same degree and level as, and training that as, that respect that when we're in the room and we're running things, like we are capable of doing those. And then by honoring that, we work together well, because we also are, you know, are here to support our patients in the same way that they are. And, and at that point, 
in a sense, he was indeed a disadvantage because I knew everything that was going on. He didn't knew anything that was happening. So he was going to walk into like a bad situation if I wasn't there. So it, even though it was just an experience, like it kind of shows you how, you know, being in that, in that room with that male figure, even if they're explaining something to you when you were the doctor, someone would just shift to that person. And, and, but if they honor that back and, and give that place to you, I think that that actually is more constructive than, than you know what what other things you can say you know if you your action speaks for you i think that that's that's better that's a beautiful story that his wife trained him well to <laughs> in, in these um, power dynamics uh we we will have for a while and we need more males that are comfortable within themselves to give the power back where it uh, should be right it requires certain I, I would say levels of maturity to to do that sort of it is possible and hopefully we will find more of that in in the industry as we balance more um, and share Erica go ahead I mean I was just going to add to that too I think one of the things that I discovered and kind of had to grow into it too and being in hospice care is that you know when you're out in the field and you're in someone's home and you're the only one that's there, you are, I mean, we tell people that you're the eyes and the ears for the doctor, who's the primary caregiver for this patient, but they aren't seeing what's going on, you are. And so for me to go from a hospital setting where, you know, and I only did that for a few years, a couple of years, and taking orders from what a doctor writes, and not feeling that comfort level of collaborating and speaking up to going into a setting where you're calling a doctor and telling them what you want to do, what you think you need to do, which is, it's great that we can do that. We are trusted. For the most part, there certainly have been physicians where you have to kind of play that game that what you want comes back to you as their idea, even though... <laughs> you know, you knew that's what you wanted to begin with. But I think having that trust and that, you know, the ability to be out there and to, to know what you're doing. And, um, and I, I thought, I mean, it was something I definitely realized in going through it. And uh, it's just eye opening, kind of. It's a shift in, in, in the power dynamic, in a sense that uh, for our listeners, our nurses visit people in their homes right? They have been all throughout this pandemic, they have been visiting with proper uh, protective equipment. Uh, and they see things in the homes that the doctors who are not in the homes to see, and they report those things. And sometimes the nurses that are in the homes can put all the pieces together that can solve some problems that they might encounter. And then they pass that on to our team of doctors or the attending doctor, which could very well be an oncologist or geriatrician or some other specialty doctor who's the attending. And sort of our nurses have to be that eyes and ears, but they also think about solutions and know possibilities and are experts in the field. High percentage of our nurses are certified in palliative care. So that's an additional layer of knowledge that they have. And they report that back to the doctor. So it's a partnership with the doctor. It's a joint effort and sort of, uh, I like what you said, Erica, sometimes what you communicate comes back as it's <laughs> somebody else's idea, not yours. And then you were very successful in that. But there are these power dynamics that all of us experience. 
and we will continue to experience and our daughters will experience that as well, I'm afraid, uh, will go on for a while. And sort of I, to wrap up our beautiful podcast, and I want to thank you, you are really sharing pearls of wisdom for our listeners. I want to pick your brains as to um, tell us a story of a woman that you admire. It could be a woman in history. It could be someone in your family, someone that you admire that has played this role model uh, role for you. And go ahead. So Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell was the first woman in America to receive a medical degree. She was born in 1821, um, and she was inspired to pursue medicine by a dying friend who said her or ordeal would have been better had she had a female physician. So she went to medical school in New York, and then she actually opened in 1857, she opened the New York Infirmary for Women and Children, and then she also opened a medical college in New York City. So just reading about what she had to go through and what she was able to accomplish, I think is just pretty amazing and inspiring. Yes. I, I <laughs> she must've had a lot of stories <laughs> um, <laughs> and it must've been very difficult. So if, if she can do it, we can do it. She took the challenge and went with it. Yep. Avis? Um, so, you know, uh, it's interesting that and you brought up a, a historic figure because as a young um, preteen and teenager, um, the books that I pulled from the library were, were all the biographies of famous women, you know, Amelia Earhart, Jane Hall, and Elizabeth Blackwell, and all those people that then kind of that sense of um, against the odds making amazing, you know, having amazing lives. And I think what that has taught me connecting it to hospice is that we have that opportunity to really meet interesting people who have had really interesting lives. Um, so I feel oftentimes like I'm inspired by the patients that we meet, um, you know, whether it's something that sort of might have made them famous in another time or did make them famous in their time or something just as simple as kind of the, the relationships that they built and the, and the work that they did. You know, I, I'm oftentimes inspired by those stories of people who've gone before, whether they're the biographies that I read in my childhood or the, <laughs> the opportunity we have now to talk to people about their lives. Yep, so many, so many. Thank you, Avis. Erica? I think too, I think just like Avis, I mean, just the people and, um, even the things that seem to me when I hear about them, like, oh my gosh, that's so fantastic and so amazing, but it was just a part of their life that seemed natural to them. You know, I remember, you know, the first woman I took care of that was, or when I started to realize that women of my mother's generation, and she's, she had me late in life, so she's, you know, 91 right now, but that women of her generation went to college. I was like, really? I didn't even think based on my family history that that was, was an option for women then. Um, you know, and I, and I have, I had a patient who was, um, I would say a friend with Eleanor Roosevelt. She was a young girl who Eleanor Roosevelt took these girls and one of my good friends, grandmother just died last week and with us and, um, same thing. She had this connection too with, with Eleanor Roosevelt and, so things like that, that seem so 
outside of anything that I would have experienced, but it's so fantastic. And, and some of the things that people do, you don't hear about even when you're taking care of them until maybe at their funeral or that someone says it and it, and it really is fantastic and amazing and inspiring, you know, to, to think that there's so much more out there for us to experience or our kids to experience or someone to, you know, have in their life. So Beautiful, beautiful. We really stand on the shoulders of giants when it comes to so many women that have done so much. Lisa? Okay, well, I'll try to say this one without tearing up. Uh, well, my, my, uh, I say that and I start crying. So that my role model um, is my mother. So mommy, Fior Garcia, if you're listening to this, when you listen to it, um, in my country, we have very, uh, familiar tradition when you ask the blessing of your parents every day at night when you're going out when you're coming back <laughs> so um i appreciate how much uh your strength and your hard work has shaped me as a woman and i will always say um you know bendicion mommy like you know give me your blessing mom every day because um you didn't went through even elementary school, you learn how to write in at home. And that was the first time that she was able to read one sign in, in the streets was so beautiful for her. And every time she shares that with me is inspiring for me to keep going. So thank you, Mama, for being who you are. What a beautiful story of an amazing woman that has inspired all of us right now as well. And we will remember her story. I certainly will. Thank you so much. To close this beautiful podcast that we're offering to the world today, I would like to ask just some tips. I mean, we're going through very hard times right now as a community, as small units in our families, as individuals. What would you say to other women to take care of ourselves. This is the moment where taking care of ourselves is really not optional. We have to do it to get through what's ahead of us. And we've, we've done pretty well so far. But if you had some pearls of wisdom as to what works for you when it comes to self-care, in a very simple way, what would you say? I think I'll go now <laughs> since I recover. <laughs> I will say... Take one girl and teach them their value and just that they can do it. And I think that that will continue shaping the next generation and the next generation and the next generation, next generations. So I think education is, is very important, but taking that into like, I'm going to help you go through this, you know, it is what helped me and, and I'm inspired to do also for other women as well. Mentorship of others. Beautiful. Um, so when I think about getting through times like the difficult times that you know this has been, this year has been, and thinking about just kind of the the grief that's there, and then the layered grief on top of that, I have found for myself and for patients as well, um, there's just beautiful literature out there that inspires me to. Um, kind of attend to the world around me in a new way with, with clear eyes. I read a lot of poetry and 
as I say, I use it for myself, but also for patients as well. And I think that having enough space in our lives so that we can take a deep breath and remember what it is that whatever that is that inspires us. But I think that sometimes we have the time now, many of us, because we're not kind of going here and there, but I think we still have to attend to making a space where we think about those questions of like, what has inspired me, what can inspire me, what can keep me moving um, or keep the people that I love going through, through times of grief. Yeah, make room for that poetry within, from books, for that things that feed your soul. I love it. Thank you, Avis. Erica? Yeah, and I, and I think kind of allowing yourself to be in the moment, whatever that is, not always filling it with things that I have to do this or I have to do that. And I think in, in this time, I mean, I've realized that there's so much that I was doing or going that I don't miss, <laughs> you know, even if at the time I thought that's what I loved or I liked or I did. And, and I don't, it's, it's funny how you can see that now, but I, I just think being present, being allowed to feel what you feel, you know, not doing what you think is expected of you or what someone else thinks about you know, and it, and that's hard, but I think it brings a lot to you if you can do that. Of course, balance it with, with what responsibilities you have to, but. <laughs> right, setting boundaries for yourself yeah. and being authentic yeah. is, is good self-care. Thank you, Erica. And You know, I think that when times have been hard, I've always turned to actually help trying to help other people. Um, no matter what you're going through, there's always someone who's going through something more difficult and there's always someone there you can help um, whether or not it's just calling them on the phone and seeing if they're okay or if it's doing more than that and I think that coming together at this time when everyone is very fragmented is is going to be really important to how we can combat the pandemic and how we all care for each other so I think expanding and on one hand I see what Erica's saying in terms of taking time and space for yourself, but also expanding and seeing that, you know, you're part of a greater community here and we all need to help each other. Yeah, we need each other to get through this and we can hold hands and get through it together. Thank you. And turning to supporting others is also good self-care. Thank you very much. It's been humbling for me to hear your stories, to hear how you've made a difference every day and how you admire each and every one of your patients and you treasure their stories and you did everything you could to support each and every one of them, not only the patients, but their families as well. And to close our podcast, we've made a habit of choosing a song that has meaning to us. My guests today have chosen Respect by Rita Franklin.
I want to thank our listeners and our audience today, our, our panel as well. I thank you so very much for your words today. This was another episode of What's Important to You, a podcast made by Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice to amplify the diverse voices in healthcare. This was episode number 13, celebrating Women's History Month. Thank you so much, and I hope you will tune in for our next episode.